This is John Holtzman, and Happy New Year as we begin 2024. I thought we'd begin on a positive note. With the rise of India over the next decades, the 21st century will be tripolar. This was the fifth of my calls for the prediction column for 2024, and easily the most positive. Uh, to this day, when I run out of positive things to say in political risk, the easy thing to do is to mention India. And I'll talk. We're, we're gonna we're gonna you know dig down a little here about this fifth call. Uh, to remind you, the other four calls were one: Ukraine will be losing the Ukraine war. This will be obvious to the most moronic cheerleader as the year goes on, um, as we continue to get you know, Ukraine exactly right. Two: uh, Israel's already kind of in a bleak way lost the peace because Saudi Arabia will not join the Abram Accord with it in the United States arranged against Iran, even if it wins on the battlefield in Gaza, it's already lost strategically. Three, Donald Trump is going to win the White House and we're going to have a realist revolution uh, in American foreign policy. Obviously, for those of you who know me, that's a, that's a good thing. Four, and very good news, there will be no war with China this year. And fifth, with the rise of India over the next decades, the 21st century will be tripolar. So big, bold, actual political risk predictions, not talking about the weather, not talking about AI, but actually talking about what political risks analysts should talk about, political risk. And I'm happy to take these five to the bank and put our record, our call record, which is the best in the business at over 80%. Um, I'm proud as can be that we've gotten it right over these last 20 years at a rate of over 80%, adding huge value for our clients. I'm proud to put these five um, on the line as we put our, our reputation on the line every year um, and with our community. Before we get going, of course, it's very exciting days for us because we're less than a week out now to D-Day, to Book Publication Day, which is next week, Wednesday, I think, January the 10th. On January the 10th, and yes, I will remind the community, please, please, please do go online for Amazon, the American Amazon Go online, give us the five stars for the book on January 10th and say we either, if you've read it, love the book or can't wait to get the book. Uh, don't perjure yourself. I think both those things are, are fair. Give us the five stars and do write this short review for Amazon. If we just get a very amazingly small number of people to do this in our community is just under nine, uh, 10,000. We have about 9,000 people listening regularly now, which is fantastic news, um, and I'm honored by this, and we're going to devote more and more time to the Substack community this year. But please do give back in terms of going online on January 10th and writing this review. Every Ask everyone you know who's interested in what we do to do this, because if we can get a relatively small number of people in our community to do this, the algorithm of Jeff Bezos will work for us, meaning they will start advertising the book. It will be the alternate selection. If you like this book, read this, and sales will boom. It is the key, a key to our strategy. So I'm asking our friends in the community, please do this on January 10th. I will remind you next week, and I will send out a reminder uh, on January 9th or 10th for everyone to do this. So please do that. But ahead of that, I wanted to unpick this fifth prediction because I think it's incredibly interesting. Um, and it really frames where the world is going. We talk a lot, as we should, about what's happening now, what's going to happen in the next year or the next five years. But to have a blue sky projection, 
of where the world will be at the end of this century, the world that we're going to live in and our children are going to live in and our great grandchildren and our, and our grandchildren are going to live in. I think you've really got to look at the rise of India and what good news this is. And that at the end of the 21st century, we're going to live in a tripolar world with three superpowers, the United States, China, and India, if everything goes as the trend line suggests that they will, and I strongly believe will be the case. Um, this is great news. So what do I mean by tripolar and why am I so bullish about India as I have been for these last 20 years? And I go to India regularly. It's a fascinating place. Amidst all the chaos, it somehow kind of works, which fascinates me as an Anglo-Saxon. I have kind of E.M. Forster's view there. But importantly, India is going to be the best investment strategically and economically uh, that you could possibly make over the coming decades. Why do I say this? Well, first of all, let's just look at the movement of India. When Modi came to power, Narendra Modi and his Hindu nationalist BJP came to power nine years ago, India had the 10th largest economy in the world. Today, it now has the fifth largest economy in the world, and soon it will be the third largest economy in the world. It's gone from 10th to fifth, and soon it will be third. And this is just an incredible rate of growth. Um, as it passes such stalwarts as the British and the French, the G7 countries, Japan and Germany, and will soon be the third largest economy in the world. Best, unlike China, it has a variety of sources of growth. It's not merely an export-driven economy. And in fact, it's not even primarily an export-driven economy. That India has a huge internal market that it plays to in much the way the United States does, unlike China. And these varying sources of growth uh, lead us to believe that, you know, it can it can deal with problems along the way without the entire economy coming unstuck, which is always the danger with China, which puts so much focus on exports. So the, the variety of sources of growth are there. The numbers are the numbers. It's moved in under Modi's premiership from 10th largest to 5th largest. Um, and this can be seen in the fact that Modi has really focused on a couple key things. One, he's decreased the tax burden economically during his time in power. He streamlined the possibilities for foreign investment, which although not a flood, is no longer a trickle as foreign investment discovers India. And I think most importantly, and it's, it's a thing that people wouldn't talk about, but it's how people vote in India, he's improved the quality of life in very fundamental ways. Um, he's built roads, he's built railways, he's built ports. The number of airports in India has doubled in the last decade. The number of medical colleges, for instance, which is an intermedical teaching colleges, has almost doubled. And vitally, there's been rural electrification, that electricity, much has happened with Franklin Roosevelt and the Tennessee Valley Authority. Um, rural electrification has come to India, which, of course, changes everything, as there's the mass installation of toilets throughout India that the problem of sanitation, which has dogged India throughout all the years of the British Raj, this is being seen to by the mass installation of toilets by Modi. This is a hugely practical and useful thing for which he deserves great credit. He's improved the quality of life you know, in terms of sanitation, mass installation of toilets, rural electrification, building of roads, railways, ports, and doubling of airports. And so this is a country that's booming with infrastructure. Infrastructure leads always to improvements in productivity. So India 
is about to take off economically even beyond what it's done. And then as well as all this, the number one, the secret sauce of India's um, economic dominance is catch-up growth. The, the demography for India is just so good. It's the only major global power with catch-up growth, meaning that it has a huge group of younger people who are about to both consume and enter the workplace, and this is when societies take off, when they have catch-up growth. India is the only country with this, the United States and the Europeans, have, of course, on demography, particularly in Europe, it's falling off the chart. America, with legal and Im illegal immigration, is just about keeping up with the 2.1 replacement number, uh, Europe is falling way behind, as is Japan, a society of old people. Uh, but the country that's really benefiting with a young, vibrant population about to take off economically is India. And demography is so hard to change because it's not a political thing. It's a social thing that India, unless it really screws up, I remember talking when I went to India the first time to senior people around Modi and saying, Given your catch-up growth, if you're marginally more competent than the old Congress party, marginally less corrupt, marginally more pro-business, again, these are qualified words, you'll boom. If you do this well, you'll grow at somewhere 7, 8, 9% because the demography in India is just so good. It's the secret sauce that make India an economic no-brainer for investment for all its problems. Sclerotic bureaucracy, which needs tending to, yeah, still a problem. Try to get a visa in India, as I do, and it's a nightmare, and it shouldn't be. Um, they are working on digitalizing all this, but it's taking time. But for all the sclerosis, India uh, bureaucratically, uh, the slow judiciary, India is taking off, and the demography is just so good. And Modi has done more than the minimum, far more than the minimum. And you see it in the growth numbers that India is now easily the largest growing major economy in the world. Um, in the first quarter of 2024, um, it grew at seven, uh, sorry, 2023, it grew at 7.8%, which is a heck of a number. In 2024, everyone, consensus is World Bank, IMF, my firm, six to 7% growth, easily the highest in the world. It's a no brainer to do more investing in India. And this will only be more true as the demography really hits. And Modi has encouraged and built upon this with improving the quality of life massively, mass infrastructure building, decreasing the tax burden, and streamlining foreign investment. So this is a hugely positive investment for all our uh, business clients out there. And again, when I run out of positive things to say, I mention India always. Um, second is it's had political stability. Most mainstream left, center-left media in the West don't like Modi because he is a right-wing populist, much in the same way they don't like Donald Trump. They also don't like him because he keeps winning elections. They wish he loses. Um, last time, his second run, it was considered he'd lose his outright majority. Actually, he added to his majority. There were three major state elections in India this past December. Modi won three of the five um, and is sitting pretty. Uh, to have, an out again, an outright majority, perhaps even increased in his next run in this next year. So you have eminent stability. Modi's been in nine years, is likely to stay longer. When I think of Modi and Rahul Gandhi, who's the leader of the fractious Congress party, Rahul Gandhi doesn't want to be leader of that. Rahul Gandhi would like to be running an NGO. He's there because his name is Gandhi. He's part of the Nehru dynasty. Um, his father was a prime minister. His grandmother was a prime minister. His great-grandfather, Jawaharlal Nehru, was the founder of the modern state of India. 
Uh, the Congress Party until the BJP has been the party of government and most of the time in India's history. But this is a guy who wants to run an NGO. Modi is hungry. He came off the street. He's the son of a tea seller. He's wanted. He's been political his whole life. When I think of the two of them, I think of a nature special, say, a you know, David Attenborough nature special. Um, what do you think of a gazelle and a lion? It doesn't matter to me really when the lion eats the gazelle. The point is that eventually the lion will eat the gazelle. Uh, Modi is, is a lion. Gandhi is a gazelle. There's no doubt that Modi will yet again thump Gandhi. The fractious divided opposition will not get its act together, and the BJP will win an unprecedented third term in power uh, as a reward for increasing India's profile in the world. Indians are very proud of, of, of the nationalism. Uh, that Modi has brought and this economic takeoff. He will be rewarded. So you have political stability, which is massively important, obviously, in political risk. You have an economically booming country. So this is a no-brainer. And then last, India has actually, in a very savvy way, managed to be all things to all men. It's a leader of both the global south, the emerging market economies, and at the same time is increasingly a close partner of the United States, at least in the Indo-Pacific, and, and this is how I would divide it. More globally, India is neutral. Um, when you look at things like the BRICS movement, when you look at India taking the concerns of the global south, not being a cheerleader for Ukraine, for instance, continuing to do business with Putin. And in fact, India has bought up an awful lot of oil that the Europeans have pushed out of their market. Putin has to sell the oil, so he sold it to India and China, almost the exact same amount he hasn't sold to Europe, meaning their sanctions have failed utterly, but he sold it to, to India at a discount because he has to get rid of the oil. So India has benefited immensely um, from the Ukraine war. And this is a Southern view that how dare the North say that one country uh, has no right to, to serve its national interests. We don't just want to go along. So at the global level, he's been a leader of the BRICS, Modi and the global South. But somehow, because India is so important to the Indo-Pacific, the most important region in the world, as you know that I think, um, India is the pivot to the United States deterring Chinese adventurism. The Indians and the, and, and the Americans both fear Chinese adventurism. Both are charter members of the Quadrilateral Initiative, along with Japan and Anglosphere member Australia. This four is really a nascent NATO to deter Chinese adventurism in the Indo-Pacific. So India has moved closer and closer to America at the same time it's maintained its leadership in the global south. That's a tough balancing act to manage, and it may yet fall off the end of, of the tightrope, but at the moment India has been all things to all men. It's a leader of the global south, increasingly close to the United States, and leading the charge in the Indo-Pacific against Chinese adventurism. And so... This is all very good, too, that India is the indispensable new ally, in addition to the Anglosphere countries like Australia and honorary Anglosphere country Japan. Uh, India is, is that third piece of the quadrilateral puzzle for the United States. Um, and so this has been vital, too. And India will increasingly matter as we get through the next five very bumpy years trying to deter China from outright invading Taiwan. So economically booming, politically stable, 
geostrategically a very impressive foreign policy and indispensable. That's why across the board, I can't understand why people don't see that playing, doing more with India, the bilateral relationship between the United States and India will be the most important emerging bilateral relationship America has in the world in the 21st century for all these reasons, bar none. And I don't know why people don't make more of this. I'm delighted to do so uh, with our prediction while people, other risk firms are talking about the weather and AI and everything but political risk. India is the jewel in the crown for American foreign policy strategy moving forward. And Lastly, if I'm right about all this, and over the next decades, India continues to go from strength to strength, emerging as a superpower, what kind of world will we live in at the end of the century? What world will, will our grandchildren live in? Well, a very nice one. If two of the three superpowers are pro-Western, because India is an honorary member of the Anglosphere, both the United States and India are English-speaking, former colonies of the British, and because of that British experience, there is sanctity of individual liberty. There are property rights. There is judicial review. There is democracy, representative government. All these things come out of this common heritage. So what you're going to have is the dominance in the Indo-Pacific um, of the Anglosphere, but with an Asian twist. And that's what I think the future will hold in this tripolar world. You'll have the Anglosphere with the U.S. and India having this common historical background of being colonies of the British, gaining all the things you get from that sanctity of the individual, rule of law, property rights, representative government, um, the First Amendment, the first, the Bill of Rights from an American point of view, but freedoms in India, um, English speaking, and they are natural allies to combat the rise of China. So two of the three superpowers will be Anglosphere countries, but with an Asian twist. All three of the superpowers will be in the Indo-Pacific. And so this will really symbolize a very different world for our children and our grandchildren. One dominated by Asia, one dominated by the Indo-Pacific, but one also dominated by a very odd form of the Anglosphere, that this old construction the former colonies of the British Empire will remain dominant in the next century. Much as in the 20th century, the British and the Americans and their relationship was the dominant alliance. In the 21st century, the India-American relationship will be the dominant relationship. And that's a world that I can very happily bequeath to my grandchildren because it's a world where liberty, where economic liberty, where political liberty, where rule of law, the sanctity of the individual still is dominant. That is a very, very good news story. Now, obviously, nothing is inevitable. As Lawrence of Arabia would say, nothing is written. This could all go horribly wrong. It isn't inevitable that anyone rises or falls. These are decisions. I'm not a Marxist. These are decisions made by men, historical men making historical policy decisions over time. But all the trend lines point to this tripolar world, to the Anglosphere with an Asian twist, this is the most important news story nobody is looking at. This is the future that we're going to live in. And best thing to say, it's a very bright one if we can just get from A to B, which is my job and what our community will be talking about from here until I retire, uh, which will be never. <laughs> so on that very happy note, happy 2024 with the rise of India. We can see that the 21st century will be tripolar, the most important 
of my five predictions and one I wanted to go into detail with our community. Have a wonderful rest of the week. We will be sure to do the culture as our next issue. We're going to look at five albums you must listen to. We're going to start with Joni Mitchell's seminal album, Blue. Um, every bit as good as anything the great Bob Dylan did. She's an incredibly underrated, and Blue is her masterpiece. And so we'll talk through five albums worth listening to before we move on either to cinema or back to literature and to look at the things that really matter. For those of you who haven't subscribed, please do so. So many of you have. Again, we're at over 9,000 regular viewers. I'm gratified by this and keep it coming as we boom and boom, much like India, we keep booming. Um, I will keep tending the patch. Uh, because this is the part of my job that I frankly enjoy the most. So we'll make as much time for it as we can. And again, D-Day is January 10th, just next week on Wednesday. Everybody go on Amazon, write a couple line review, give us the five stars, and let's get Jeff Bezos working for us. Have a wonderful day, and on to the next. <laughs>